Today, we're in John chapter 7, verses 53 through 8, 11. You'll see that come up behind me. And the title of the message is, The Questionable, Most Abused Passage by Critics of Christians. So in the title, you can tell there's, a, there's something different happening here. Questionable... We'll get to that in just a minute. Most abused passage by critics of Christians, you will recognize it when you see it. There's different verses in the Bible that are popular for different reasons. The the verse that we're going to get to that is definitely the most abused by non-believers against believers, you'll recognize it. You'll see, is my mic not on? Sounds like it is. It's not on. Maybe I didn't push the button. Giving these guys a... Now. Now my mic's on. Echo. Can you hear that? I sound like I'm in a can. So there we go. They're back there troubleshooting, and they didn't know the pastor needed to be troubleshooted first. So now you can hear me. (laughs) Thanks for the trust. Sorry for the betrayal. All right, so we're going to be in John chapter 7, but first of all, we've got to go back to a passage. We talked about it many months ago because this is a, quite an extensive series we're going through. So I want to back up to John chapter 5, and I want to show you this verse. We'll go ahead and read it together. You'll see it up behind me. Starting with verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which is five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, what I'd like to point out to you is some controversial pieces of this passage, because we're going we're gonna to take a bigger chunk of controversy later. First of all, you can see by the notes that you have in the English Standard Version that I have up behind me, we have a controversy with the word for Aramaic. You see it highlighted up behind me. You can look at your footnotes, see what that is. We talked about it before. And Bethesda is another controversy. Is it Bethesda? Is it Bethsasta? Which place is it? Because different Different manuscripts have different words. So that's a controversy. And then the next one is also paralyzed. Um, I don't highlight it here behind me, but I find it interesting that it used to be politically correct. It used to be socially acceptable to call people invalids. How would you like to be called invalid? But that's the way we talked, even as this was translated in later years. But these are all distractions, and I'm going to give you the biggest distraction. I don't know if you notice the biggest controversy here, and you'll see it come up behind me, a little red box. It's on nothing. Where is verse 4? Look at that. Remember we talked about this. Verse 4 is missing in almost every modern translation. It's not there. 
You'll find it in your footnotes, you'll get an explanation in your footnotes that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have or refer to John chapter 5, verse 4. If you want to go back to that message, you can get online, you can find it on Spotify, you can, you can remember how we went, we went through the history of when chapters were added to the Bible. This was not inspiration, but... Somebody added chapters so that we could find things better. And then later, verses were added. Definitely not by a scholar. This was by a printer. A guy that printed books, rode his horse, going around delivering books. But he decided to divide it up into verses. So the chapters and verses were not inspiration of God. These were all added. And then after that is when they discovered, oh my goodness, you know that thing we had a problem with, with this particular section of John at the beginning? We didn't know if it really should be there because in the oldest manuscripts we have, it's not there. But it's there in all the later manuscripts. So, you know, now we got a problem. We've discovered some more texts that are even older. And now we know for sure it wasn't originally there. And that's, that's the verse that talks about where they believed from time to time that the Spirit would come and stir the water. So the first one that jumps in gets healed which is not the way God operates anywhere in the Old or New Testament, the most healthy person will get healed every time because they're the fastest one to get in. The guy with a hangnail, he's in there. God that's an invalid for 38 years, he's got no hope with these athletes that just have a minor issue. So it's interesting to note this, but all of this is a distraction to the point of what's going on in this chunk that I have up behind you. Jesus saw that he'd been there a long time. He asked him a question, do you want to be healed? You'll see that highlighted behind me. That is a very valid <laughs> question because that's a question he might ask us. We're going through difficult things, you know, we're struggling through life. Maybe it's been a long time. We've had this struggle and Jesus looks at us and maybe we don't hear it with an audible voice, but we understand he wants us to think about the question, do you want to get better or do you want to stay where you are? Because the reality is a lot of times we might say, I want to get better, but we don't want to change. We don't want to do anything differently than we're already doing. And in fact, the guy that's labeled an invalid here, 38 years, he's been paralyzed, unable to take care of himself. He doesn't even ask Jesus' question, answer Jesus' question. Nobody helps me when the water's stirred. He doesn't answer the question, do you want to be healed? Doesn't even cover it. Jesus doesn't get on to him. Hey, buddy, I asked you a question, straight question. You did not give me a straight answer, so I'm not going to deal with you. He didn't do that because his grace is so big, he doesn't even address the issue that he didn't answer his question. So he just tells him, pick up your mat and walk. And since that time, I don't know if you remember, this is what actually rushed in the anger from the religious leaders of his day. They couldn't stand that he had him pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. And now we've reached a point where they badly want to arrest and kill him. That's where we are in our text. And we're, we're not even halfway through John. We're in John chapter 7 with all of this. But I wanted you to see this because this is a minor issue compared to what we're going to be dealing with. We're, our entire text for today, the entire chunk, 
was not in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, is not referenced by the early church fathers in the first century at all. Ouch. And it's a chunk. It's not just one verse. So I want to give you this up front. I learned this while I was in my first undergraduate seminary, so I'm going to give it to you in the best way I can uh, quote what I was told. One half of 1% of Scripture is contaminated by human error, and none of those passages impact the truth of God. So in other words, if you take all of these questionable passages, like, well, that wasn't originally there, add all of those up, Old and New Testament questionable passages, contaminated by errors of humans, it all adds up to one half of 1% by content. And none of it alters the biblical teaching from the front to the back. So that's good to know. So I know because when you talk about this is the infallible word of God, and you start talking about, well, those verses weren't originally there, then... (laughs) Is it the infallible Word of God? Yes, it is. The parts that are erroneous, that have errors, it's only make up one half of 1%. And even if you accept them, they don't change the doctrine in the Bible, so it's okay. But every time I get to one of these passages, I want to look at it with more scrutiny. I want to to see, like in this passage that we just looked at, it's like, okay, is that the nature of God anyway, to set up a system where the most athletic, healthy people will be the ones healed ahead of everybody else? No, that's not the way God works. So, there's, so we know this is, it's questionable all by itself, so let's just read it contextually, and that's the way we'll look at all this. But what I did is I went to what I've told you before. If you see these in, uh, I've got a divider in the middle of it. It's a, one of our prayer sheets. I've got a divider in this book because it's right about the place where it's divided into two volumes, this book was originally published, the, the first, uh, 1961, Volume 1. Volume 2 wasn't published until 1965. Ultimately, they were put together in a one-volume book. But both are combined. That's what the dividers for is the volume about that area. And this is from College Press Publishing, and I believe they are the best overall textbooks that cover the Bible that's out there, and they're no longer in print. You see them in somebody's yard sale, snag them, I'll buy it back from you. Uh, But that is from P.T. Butler, and as we're going through John, I rely on this. I go back to it. When I hit a snag, like, oh my goodness, I don't remember. What's the deal here? And I'll go, then I'll open it up. So today, as I'm approaching John chapter 753 through 811 with you, I wanted to be sure that I had all my bases covered, and I couldn't remember what Mr. Dr. Uh, Paul Thurman Butler said. So I opened it up to look. And this is what he said. I know it's hard to read, so I'm going to try to see if I can even... Eh, this is not going to be fun. Uh, basically, I'm going to try to read off the wall. Let's see if you can read it. Oh, we, can, we can read this together. Let's try that. This commentary will omit printing the text of John chapter 753 through 811 for new textual evidence, now makes it even more certain that this passage was not a part of the original text. Remember, this is 1965 when this was written. Our earliest and best Greek manuscripts do not contain this passage, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, uh, and Codex Washingtonianus. Isn't that hilarious? Um, 
Three of the most important manuscripts do not give the slightest indication that the story of the woman taken in adultery is part of the original. In fact, no Greek manuscript prior to the ninth century with the exception of the bilingual manuscript Codex Bizet, has the story. None of the church fathers who wrote in Greek commented on this passage until the 12th century. Although many of them made reference to the passages which immediately precede and follow it. So in other words, when preachers were preaching all the way up until the 12th century, for the most part, they didn't even... No, there was something there, because it wasn't there. In other words, they preached all the way up to the front of it, and then they, then they continued preaching after it, but they did not mention it at all because they didn't see it. They didn't have it. It wasn't part of the biblical text. All the way to the 12th century. That's crazy. So what this does is it creates a problem if you're in a Bible study. You're, let's say you're having a, uh, your own in your ho- own home and you're going through the Bible, and you have your modern translations in some people's laps, and you have the King James in some people's laps. The King James is one of the few translations that still has the text in it, like there's no difference, like it's just supposed to be there. And so what will happen is you'll be studying with a group of people, and all of a sudden you come across a missing verse in a modern translation, or a chunk that's labeled, uh, this was not originally there. And so the King James people that think that they think that God speaks in King James lingo, they they really uh, they don't know the history of how the Bible came about. So in the King James, the, those people will say, "Well, you see, that's the problem with these modern translations. Huh. King James has it. It's like the King James is the first English translation. It's not. It's definitely not." Use your history, and I've set out some of that for you before, and I can do it again. But in the men's meeting, men's uh, notebook, some of the men put it in their notebook, so it's right there as well. So you can see for yourself it's not the first English translation, but it's a good translation, in my opinion. But when you've got a group of people going, well, there you go, they got those corrupt modern translations, then your Bible study just goes down the toilet after that conversation because people don't understand and they think their Bibles are no good and what do you trust now? So that's a problem. I did set out for you today um, an article I wrote, if you might remember, in October. It was published in 2000, October 4th, 2004, and it is on the table out there where you sign up for the carnival. And... I think we'll have it on our Facebook page, too, if you want to link directly to uh, one of those uh, publications of that article. I just wanted to let you know that we have an issue with our text. We're approaching. So I want to give you some background real quick. I know I've given you a lot, but I want to give you a quote, and this is an interesting quote. You'll see it come up behind me uh, from Daniel Cahill. I think that's the next slide, is it not? Yeah. The Old Testament law identifies sin and teaches the need for salvation. God's grace gives us that salvation through Jesus Christ. There are over 600 ceremonial laws and rituals listed in the Old Testament. These are the laws that Paul said no longer apply. Wow. Now, this Daniel Cahill, you probably don't know who he is. I'm going to tell you who he is. He's actually a theologian and scholar who lives on the streets of New York City 
every day of his life trying to lead people to Christ. Uh, Not your conventional theologian and scholar by any stretch, but what he says, there's a lot of information here. The main thing I wanted you to grab is that there's a lot of laws, ceremonies, and rituals in the Old Testament And so we need to kind of grab a hold of that in our heads as we approach this next list. I want to give you some purposes of the Old Covenant. You'll see that come up behind me. Um, I have this emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. I had that last week because I kind of wanted to set the stage for this week because our text kind of mandated it. So when you think about what we're going to go over right now, I want you to think about how God takes care of us emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. Okay, so we're going to go through a list, and I didn't put some on the next one. I will have some purposes of the Old Covenant because it's not all the purposes. But first of all, one of the purposes of the Old Covenant is boundaries. It's right and wrong. So the Old Covenant gives a lot of boundaries, You know, don't do this and don't do that. You must do this at this time. All these different boundaries. I don't know if you spent much time with at-risk youth, but there seems to be a universal issue with many at-risk youth. Most of the time, it's a dysfunctional family. But another major issue that comes as a result of having a dysfunctional family is no boundaries. Thanksgiving... For so many years, Stephanie and I, with six kids, when we would want to go visit family, especially my family down in Louisiana, nobody had a house big enough just to have us. Eight people suddenly show up at your house. I mean, you know how that feels in church, a church this small, when eight, a family of eight walks in, it's like, whoa, look at that, our attendance has increased incredibly. Well, that's, that's what happens when you take a family of eight and you just cram them into a two-bedroom house with seating for four. There's not enough room for Thanksgiving. So what we decided to do was, I decided, let's just go every other year. We'll go. We'll rent a place that's big enough for everybody and everybody from however far they want to come can just come and have Thanksgiving in our family. A couple of those years, we had some kids, some youth group kids uh, that came with us. And one of those years, this youth group kid had both a mother and a father in the home. And as we went around, it was the first year I introduced a practice. I don't know if you've done this at your Thanksgivings. If you have family gatherings, this is a risky thing, but you can try it. I decided with my grandparents, they were both still alive, and I knew that was going to be the biggest challenge, is getting them to buy into what I was asking everybody to do. After we had already had um, lunch, I think, it might have been before, but I got everybody to sit around in a big circle in this cabin on the lake, and I said, I I want everybody to participate. We'll start with me, but we're going to go around the room, because it's Thanksgiving, and we're going to say to each person, I love you, and here's some things about you that make it easy for me to love you things I appreciate about you. And we went around the room, and of course, some people struggled with that. We were, by nature, we're critical. We tend to find fault rather than build up. We tear down. You know, that's what we do. But 
as when it went all the way around and it got to this person, her name was Stephanie. It wasn't my wife. But when it got to her, she was crying. And she said, I don't know everybody's name yet. I, I really don't know you very well. And she said, but the way you treat me is so good. And she said, I, I'm spending time with the Adams family right now. And in my house, I get to do what I want. I get to go and come and go as I please. At their house, they have rules. You can't just come and go as you please. And you, gotta, you, know, you can't just do what you want. And she said, I, I just want to tell everybody here, when I have to live in an environment where there are a lot of rules, it feels like love. That's what she said. What? It feels oppressive to me when I'm telling you you can't do something you're used to doing, but no, not in my house, you know? She felt like that was love. I'm telling you, it's good for us to have boundaries. And kids that struggle not having boundaries, once you start giving them boundaries, they seem to function so much better because now they know what's expected. And God set us up with the old covenant with boundaries. We know what's expected. Okay, now I gotta take a rabbit trail. I'm sure you love that. But here we go. We're gonna do a rabbit trail. So you'll see up behind me some, uh, some statements. There's no absolutes. You'll hear people even on the news will say, there's no absolutes. We don't, there's no such thing as absolutes. Nothing is absolutely true. Truth is relative. Your truth is my truth. My truth is my truth, you know. Um, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth, I should have said. So that is what people say. They say this as if it's true. They just make statements and that's it. That's true. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. Just leave each other alone. We'll be fine. This is the world we live in now. All right. So let's go ahead. I want to draw a, a box. You'll see it happen up behind me. Oh, nothing anyone says is absolutely true. That's what the box is for. Watch this box. You see that? Isn't that cool? Jim did that. Anyway, there's a little red box that's behind me. And so if nothing anyone says is absolutely true, which is the same thing as no, it's no absolutes, nothing's absolutely true, truth is relative, all those other things, that means that anything, if you say anything, let's say we can put it in that box, which means you, you can't trust anything anybody says as true. So now we have to move. Nothing anyone says is absolutely true. Watch Jim do this. Ooh, into the box. Anything you say can be put into that box. Watch the other statement go down. So if anything you say can be put into a box to be distrusted as not absolutely true, that means any of those statements that indicate nothing is absolutely true has to go in the box, which means don't trust me when I say, trust me, nothing is absolutely true. So God has designed it in his providential sovereign wisdom that you can't say nothing is absolutely true without nullifying what you just said. It doesn't mean, I mean, when you follow the rules of inference, it doesn't mean, well, that means then there's absolute truth. No, that's not what it means. Just because you can't say there's no absolute truth doesn't mean there is. It just implies there might be. And what source are you going to turn to? I've found that I can trust this book. And it's full of boundaries. 
Okay, so let's move on with the list. We're going to continue some purposes of the Old Covenant. The second thing in my list is, in a purpose, is to highlight cruel nature of mankind. Because people are critical by nature, we're given all of these rules, these boundaries, rights and wrongs. God sets it up. This is right and this is wrong. The Old Covenant definitely establishes rights and wrongs. Because of that, by nature, as we learn right and wrong, we think everybody else is wrong and we're right because we've learned right and wrong. It's one of those things, it's, it's just, it's a struggle we all have. The more you get closer to God, the more you learn about His Word. The more you learn about His Word, the more you learn right and wrong. And as you learn this, it's real easy to be critical of everybody else who doesn't know what you know. If they don't know what you know, then they're lesser. They're more wrong, because you know more rights and wrongs. So they, and it's, we don't, we don't, we don't want to visualize this, but I highly recommend go ahead. It's safe. The closer, at least the closer I get to God, the more I realize how far away I am. The more I learn from His Word, the more I realize I don't know anything. I've got such a long way to go. And in the spiritual ladder, if you're climbing, if you visualize people climbing the spiritual ladder, we've got people in this church that have been, they're not, they're not just now cutting their teeth on the Bible. They, they know the Bible. From years they've been learning. But they'll tell you they, they still need to learn more. So if you can imagine, some of those people might be climbing on the spiritual ladder. They're figuring things out. You know, I, I don't, I used to let bad words, you know, creep into my vocabulary. I used to have an anger issue. I, I used to, whatever it is, you name it. Now, you know, I've learned and I've grown and I've decided I need to stop these behaviors. But then I learn I need to stop this one too. You know, I need to learn, I need to start that one too. So we're all growing. And as you're spiritually climbing this ladder, you're doing better with the rights and wrongs, hopefully, but that doesn't mean that everybody else needs to be where you are. You weren't there last year or the year before or the year before that. Does that make sense? So when a new person walks in our doors, it's our general human nature to be critical because we know things and they don't. They might come in here with, some teenager might come in here, there's Plenty of teenagers that walk by might come in with a ball cap on and sit right on the front row. A boy with a ball cap. Doesn't he know? I mean, in the New Testament, it says you're not supposed to do that in worship, young man. You're not supposed to have your ball cap on in worship. Get it off. He's not. He really, it's better if he doesn't. But he doesn't know. And if we all pounce on him, he won't be back. But if we just love him to Jesus, and eventually he'll learn. I think the Lord would be pleased. But it definitely highlights the cruel nature of mankind when you look at the Old Covenant and you see how people follow through on the laws that God established. They don't have a lot of mercy. They they don't have a lot of grace. And they don't do a lot of self-examining. They do a lot of pointing their fingers. Okay, there's some more purposes of the Old Covenant. We'll look at the third one here. You'll see it come up behind me. To emphasize none of us could ever be good enough. 
Because as much as we learn the rights and wrongs, we know we can never be perfect. There's only one man that walked the planet that was managed to do that, Jesus, God in the flesh. None of the rest of us can ever accomplish that here on earth. Fourth thing is to create a dire need of a Savior. Because if we learn that we can never do it, I can't do it, I can't make it on my own, I need a Savior. You see where I'm going with this? All right, and then another thing, and the purpose of the Old Covenant is to teach the nature of God, which is much grace for the faithful. One of the reasons why we are supposed to emphasize the story of Esther every year, because it teaches that those that are faithful, God is faithful to those that are faithful. He's he's got grace for His faithful ones. And even more. Another purpose is to lead us to the new covenant with much grace. And the seventh one I'm going to give you in my list, and this is a short list, of course, is to bring much value to faith, hope, and love. These are some of the purposes of the old covenant. And when you think about that, it kind of makes sense what unfolds, because I'm not going to do what Mr. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Paul Thurman Butler did. I don't know if you noticed when I went to my commentary that I trust, I open it up and he says, I'm not even going to print the text, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And the little discussion he has is about how it didn't originally appear in the New Testament. <laughs> You're not going to help me out at all here. So what I want to do is I do want to go through the text. I do know that the evidence is extremely heavy that it was never there originally. But I'd like to look at the text and presume that the story happened in a way that it would happen by, by what we know about the nature of God and Jesus. So both God the Father and the Son just want to look at it from that angle. So I want to peel it back a little bit um, as we get closer. But I want to quickly do something else. I want to read to you. Um, I want to talk about a couple of things. Let's look at John chapter 13, verses 34 to, through uh, 35. A new commandment I give to you. This is what Jesus says. And, and we're talking, you know, We're not even halfway to it yet. We're almost halfway to it, or a little bit more than halfway to it, I guess. John chapter 13, verse 34, we're going to be in seven. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just, uh, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the main thing that Jesus emphasizes later in chapter 13 in John is, you'll see it highlighted behind me, Love one another. Is that not the main thing uh, that we're supposed to do with this new commandment? Love one another? Yes. But I want to back up and do something that we didn't talk about. And it's, and you know, a couple of years ago almost, I did talk about this. But in our study through John, we haven't done it because it's not in John. 
So I want to go to Luke, and I'm just going to allude to it. We don't have time to read it. You'll see in Luke chapter 10, I believe it is. Can you make that pop up there, Jim? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And what this is called is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're all familiar with this, so I'm going to race through it rather quickly. I, if I could rename it something, I would call it this. Look at, uh, behind me. Dumbfounding the Expert Critic. It's a drop-the-mic moment, and it's probably no other drop-the-mic moment in Jesus' ministry better than this one. So from the back of the room, the critic, the expert, the, the law... The lawyer is in the back of the room. And the lawyer, by the way, he knows the old covenant. He knows the law. And so he says to Jesus, hey, uh, teacher, <laughs> why don't you uh, tell us, what's, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to him, you're the expert. Tell us, what do you think? So he says, well, love the Lord your God with all, love the, love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, your mind, and strength, and, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says to him, good answer, do that and you'll be fine. Then he goes back to teaching. Well, the lawyer is a little irritated because he wants to justify himself. <laughs> well, that didn't work. He's trying to make, put Jesus on the spot. It didn't work. So then Jesus, uh, then he decides to Push him further as Jesus is trying to go back to his teaching. He says, who's my neighbor? Well, Jesus said, let me, let me tell you a story. You see, there was a, a man that was going between Jerusalem and another place, and, which means he's spiritual, means he's a Jew. So he's going to the temple to do spiritual stuff. And, and some robbers beat him up and leave him half dead. That's what the Greek actually says. So he's going to die if somebody doesn't care for him. They are leaving him to die after they rob him. Martin Luther King Jr. drove on that road so many years later, obviously, and said, this road is still a scary road. It still feels like you could get jumped. And so a priest walks by and a priest? Well, that's a spiritual person, a Jewish person who knows to, you know, this is a Jewish person, I'm a Jewish person, but it's dangerous. This road is dangerous, you know. He got, he got beat up. I, it could happen to me. I don't know what he's thinking. The Bible doesn't tell us. But Jesus tells the story that a priest, instead of helping this person that is dying, the priest makes a decision. He's got things to do. And he passes by on the other side and completely ignores that there's a man, one of his own, dying on the road. A little bit later, a Levite walks by. And that's where they get the priest from. Levite, definitely from God's people, does the same thing. Just walks on the other side. Leaves one of his own. And then a Samaritan happens to go by. Who's a Samaritan? Well, they considered them half-breeds lost. They had their own temple. Why is he even near our temple? They're not supposed to be near us. We can't talk to them. We can't be seen with them. If we touch anything that they touch, we've got to wash it because they are just horrible, lost souls we should not have anything to do with. But the Samaritan walks by and he sees the Jew lying down on the pavement on the road and uh, realizes he's, he needs help. 
And he risks his own life. He could be jumped, robbed, beat up, and left half dead or dead. And he decides to care for the man. And then puts him on his donkey and takes him to a place where he pays for the cost of him staying there and for food. He's got things to do, so he gives money to the innkeeper and says, here, take care of him. And if it's not enough, I'm going to come back, and if he leaves a bill, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of the bill. And he says, as he tells this story to the crowd, he says to the lawyer, so who was a neighbor to the man that was on the road? And the lawyer's like, that's easy. Well, the one, who, the one who helped. I mean, you think about it. It is easy. So I'm supposed to love, because he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and strength and, and mind. He's like, okay, so who am I supposed to love? The one who stops and takes care of me? The one who loves me? Love that one? Well, that's easy. Yeah, the one that stopped and, and, and cared for the guy. <laughs> what does he think I am? And Jesus told him, yeah, go do that. Ouch! I got to love a Samaritan. I hate Samaritans. Can't stand them. They're nasty, dirty people. They don't believe like I believe. They don't act like I act. I just tried to trap him, and he just got me to say, I have to love God with everything I've got, and love the nastiest people on this planet. And Jesus, you know, reiterates this. And by the way, I don't know if you know, he told this story before the feeding of the 5,000. That's when he told this story. So this is already in their minds before we get to John chapter 13 when he says, love one another. That's the commandment I'm giving you. He talked about this also later before he ascends to heaven, before he actually goes to the cross, he talks about this at the end of Matthew, when he talks about separating the sheep from the goats. Remember when he says, away from me, you evildoers. I was sick and you didn't care for me. I needed clothing, you didn't provide for me. I was in prison, you didn't come visit me. And away from me. And then the others, he says, hey, thank you for taking care of me when I need food, clothing, and when you visited me when I was in prison. And they said, hey, when do we do those things? Because what you did to the least of these, what you did not do to the least of these, I take it personally. So Jesus, if we, if we look at somebody and we think, I don't have time for them, I'm sick of them, I cannot love them, Jesus takes it personally. The way we treat them, the least of the people that we can, we want to rank people on who we care about, the people we care about the least. How did we care for them? Jesus says, I take that personally. And on judgment day, he's going to separate us based on how we treated people. The least people on our list. Okay, so now we've got all that. I wanted to put all that stuff in your head for background so that we could get to our text. And here we go. And we'll, we won't spend a lot of time going through it. But here we are. John chapter 7 begins, verse 53. It says, they went, to each, they went each to his own house. See the parenthetical note? You could look in your Bibles and see for yourself, even if you use a, an electronic one, and see how yours separates it out. Most of them in the modern translations have a statement like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. That's our text. It begins with, they, they went each to his own house. So now people have dispersed. 
Then we jump into chapter 8, and you'll read along with me. Chapter 8, starting with verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, a familiar place. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. Well, there'll be some more, just a minute. So remember who these people are. They can't get their attack together because, you remember, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in a resurrection. Jesus keeps bringing up the resurrection. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are fighting amongst themselves, and they can't keep a unified attack on Jesus. And the people are now following Jesus in droves. Large amounts of people are now going to the synagogue to be taught by Jesus when they're used to being taught by the Pharisees and Sadducees. So they're losing. And they're looking for a way to arrest him and to kill him. We've already been told this multiple times. And now they think they've got it. They've found it. Here we go. So they found a woman who's been caught in adultery. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now let's see what he's going to do. Because the law says what the law says. Now I want you to think about something. Because we're going to read this in the context of the entire Bible. The law is, our, our, you know, these rights and wrongs, our boundaries. The law is, if a couple is caught in adultery, they are to be sentenced to death. They are to, that's, that's the death penalty. You got to understand the reason why this is set up this way, because we live in a world now where it doesn't matter. I mean, probably all of us have people in our families that don't understand boundaries of marriage. Clearly, adultery is outside the boundaries. Not in our world. In our world, no boundaries everywhere. No boundaries, no, no. In fact, we just let, we just, no boundaries, no rules, no rights and wrongs. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. There's no absolute truth. Yes, I'm going to do my own thing. And so, in fact, if you try to tell anybody outside these walls, you risk of being disregarded as nothing yourself. <laughs> you, you're a bigot if you think there's rules, boundaries for marriage. Psh, come on. That's right in the Bible. But we, there's a, it seems to be a, um, a worldwide effort to get rid of trusting the Bible. And in this world that we've created for ourselves, we give people this idea that you don't need boundaries. You'll feel a whole lot better if you don't have boundaries. And the reality is, time has proven without boundaries, we don't feel loved. And people chase after these things outside the boundaries. I, I, you'll be happier if you just don't think you have to stay within the confines of biblical marriage or even roles of men and women. Ah, let's go outside of that. You'll be so much happier. Well, does it work out like that? I mean, we keep getting told, follow the science, follow the science, okay? Follow the science. Do the people that chase after these things, are they happy people or are they suicidal, depressed people? Well, almost universally, they're suicidal, depressed people. It's not helping. But human nature is to be critical of everybody else and not to self-examine. And even us. 
I get to say this. I didn't, I didn't, it's going to get more than likely, um, you know, we'll see it online just like all the other messages. But we had an opportunity where we almost had somebody come in here who's outside the boundaries because that's what this person's been taught. And that person might come and visit us one of these days. And they're very different than the way we look, act, and talk. And I hope, and I got to tell you, this is me talking to me. There was like three of you last week that told me the message was for me. You know, you said to me, I think that was pointed right at me. I think it was for me. And I told each one of you, I said, no, that was for me. I thought it was for me. (laughs) That's this right now. I'm telling you, if somebody comes in here and they're very different than us and clearly not following following boundaries of God, I hope that I'm able to show them the love of Jesus anyway. Do I agree with what they might be doing? No. But hopefully, loving them to Jesus will get them to the point where they'll learn at some point in time they need to look at the boundaries. They're good for them. So here we are with a woman who's been caught in adultery, and the law is that she's supposed to be sentenced to death. Here's a problem. Here's a big problem with this story. One of the reasons why I I know that if God wanted this to be inspired, He would have the rest of the scripture story. Because the question begs itself, how do you catch a woman in adultery without the man? You can't. So the story's missing something. They're both supposed to be sentenced to death. You caught the woman without the man. How do you catch her in adultery, in the act of adultery, without the man? Okay, so we're, we're missing a chunk here in the story. Even if we say this is supposed to be here, there's a piece missing. All right, so she's got them and she's, they, they've gotten her and put her in the midst of the crowd that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. I want you to imagine in the synagogue, it's not a perfectly clean swept floor like in a lot of our homes. It's probably got a lot of sand on it. We need that information for what we're about to do next. Okay, so she's in the midst. We'll continue with the next verse. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been, a, has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger, on the ground. Now, they're wanting to trap him because he's already, in their opinions, he's violated the extra laws they've added to the law of keep the Sabbath. He told that man to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. See what he does with this woman. And what he does with this woman is he bends... Now, look what it says in the text. You see, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. It doesn't say what he wrote. And it doesn't say how it's done because in the temple you got a hard surface floor, but clearly there's sand on the floor, dirt on the floor because he's writing in something. Isn't it cool? Because I love dry erase boards and chalkboards because if you got a question, I want to answer it. And he's doing that. He's giving people a visual. So he's writing. Doesn't say he's drawing. He's writing. Now, given the nature of Jesus, and what happens next in the story, here's what I think. And this is based on Jesus also saying, um, 
you hypocrite, first get the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. It's talking about a piece of wood, both cases. And he says, then you will see more clearly so that you can be able to go help your brother with a speck in his eye. So in other words, if you have the same problem, and you're, that means your problem's bigger because you don't even look, you're not looking at yourself, you're looking at them. You fix yourself in that particular area of your life before you try to fix that person. So what happens ultimately is these people end up walking away. I want you to imagine this. They are ready to have Jesus tell them to obey the law. They got rocks in hand. All right, what do you say we're going to do with this lady? Because we're supposed to do this. You know the law. And Jesus starts writing in the sand. I want you to imagine as he's writing in the sand, you hear this sound. People are walking away. Why are they walking away? Because my educated guess, I think, is writing down either the names of people standing there holding rocks and the sin they're engaged in right now, or the names of the people they're having adultery with secretly. You're holding a rock? Because they all walk away. What else would he be writing? He's not drawing, he's writing. What else would he be writing? Something that connects them to the hypocrisy that they want to kill this woman. You, you want to throw a rock at her? And uh, let's talk about that. Ooh, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Have you seen it play out like this where some televangelist is caught doing some adultery? Another televangelist gets interviewed on the news. He needs to be removed out of there. Bad example. Then that televangelist is now, they were doing it too. And Jesus writes on, with his finger on the ground. <laughs> All right, let's move on to verse 7 and following. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And I don't know, but my mind goes to this place where I, where I just automatically think if he's beginning with the older ones, he's digging up some bones. You remember a few years back? Remember that? Oh, you forgot. Let me remind you. And as he does this, imagine, how, this is a bigger moment than you might imagine. Okay, so it's a big deal. Like, okay, well, I don't want to talk about that. I'm out. When he starts doing that, they also have to pause and think for a moment. How does he know? Even if you don't believe he's writing in the sand, these adulterous sins these people were engaged in, either, even in the past, he wrote something that made them think, I can't judge her. I can't, I can't judge her. That's what he had to write. Why else would they go away? They thought they had him. They didn't have him. They definitely are trying to pile on and get this man, and this didn't work. 
He had something on them. Had to be. The most abused verse in the Bible that's used against Christians is, another translation, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's going to get thrown in your face. You try to live your Christian life out there, and, and you know, somebody, you know, ah, uh, you, you going to watch that movie that's coming out in, in uh, January? Uh, no, I'm, I'm Christian. I'm, uh, no, I, don't, I don't think I should do that. Oh, you're judging me. I just don't think I should do that. I, so you do your thing, but I know that I shouldn't do that. You're judging me. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And people like to take this verse and they like to make it, well, okay, all right, here you go. You cannot tell me what I need to be doing, giving me boundaries, unless you're perfect. You have to be perfect before you start talking to me about what I need to do. Really? And there's Christians that buy into this lie. Really? So if I don't have a right to tell you what God says we're supposed to be doing, I shouldn't be preaching, shouldn't be teaching this book. None of us should, because how does any of us have a right to share anything in this book? Because none of us can be perfect. Okay, we're done. Don't need to have church. Don't need to have Sunday school. Don't need to have Bible study. We really shouldn't have a conversation about the boundaries in this book. Don't buy into that lie. If Jesus was writing sins of these people, it wasn't random sins. It wasn't, well, you cuss. Well, you do that. And that's what we do. Husbands and wives are really good at this, you know. I don't know if you should have done that. That's probably not Christian behavior. Oh, yeah, well, you do this. What difference does it make? And if, if, you do, if that happens to you, just say, if it's true, say, I shouldn't do that. You're right. That doesn't change the fact that you shouldn't do that either. <laughs> and if they're two different things, then if you've conquered that sin, you can help the other person. If you're still struggling with alcoholism, don't try to help my friend who is an alcoholic that's struggling with it right now, because that's going to end in a disaster. If you have an addiction of another kind, don't you dare try to go and help my family member who's going through addiction problems right now, because you're just going to make it worse. But you, who've You've conquered that sexual sin that you used to struggle with. My cousin is struggling with it right now. Would you please talk to him? You've got that porn addiction that you used to have and you, you got over it and you were really in it. Could you please help my neighbor who's struggling right now? I think you'd be more effective than me because I, I, I haven't had that struggle and you've conquered it. Please, don't buy into the lie that you have to be perfect before you can help somebody else in their walk with Christ. That is a lie of the devil, and he's just trying to silence us Christians. Don't buy into the lie. But the text continues. Look at the next few verses. John chapter 10 and 11 wraps it up. Jesus stood up and said to her, they've all walked away, he's finished writing in the sand. She might not even have any idea of what these names mean on the ground or words. But he stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, now uh, most people, when they think about him writing in the sand, uh, they think about he's outside and they've all wandered off. He's in the synagogue. There's no one else in the building now. They, all of the critics have left except Jesus, his disciples, and this woman. And all of the critics 
are gone. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. This woman probably thought she was about to die. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He still says, knock it off. What you did was wrong. Boundaries. But he didn't condemn her. And this is the nature of Jesus that we see throughout the New Testament. So that part of this story is good. Now, here we go. I want to answer the so what. We always do this at the end. What's the so what? Here we go. There's a few things. We'll take them one at a time. First of all, you'll see them pop up as we go. We need a Savior. Can't do it on our own. None of us. Second, Jesus meets that need perfectly. He is the Savior, and He can help us through whatever we're going through. Don't forget, emotionally, mentally, physically, or spiritually. Third thing, we have been given boundaries which are good for us. It's love. Makes us better. Keeps us closer to God. Sin separates. Fourth thing. The main things are to love God and love one another. <laughs> Couldn't be better illustrated than in the drop the mic moment of the story of the Good Samaritan. The drop the mic moment where he baffled, dumbfounded the legal expert who wanted to criticize him. Loving one another, the next thing, includes loving the hardest to love. The people that get on our nerves. The people that keep making the same mistakes over and over again and expecting different results. <laughs> the people that do not have life figured out and they seem to struggle to figure it out. The people that we almost can't stand. We wouldn't say hate, but we might say, I can't stand that person Loving one another includes the hardest to love. Loving the hardest to love. And the last thing here in the so what is struggling to love someone is our problem, not theirs. They might walk in here very different than us. They might interact with you in the store very differently than a Christian might react. In your family, they might be a constant disappointment. But struggling to love them is our problem, not their problem. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for revealing to us through your word how we're supposed to conduct our lives. Thank you for giving us boundaries. Thank you for making clear to us the directive to love you and to love the hardest to love. God, help us, because it's not easy. We struggle, Lord. So we ask you to give us what it takes to be your people so that you may be glorified and honored. And God, in these very, very strange and difficult days, show us how we can still shine your light, how you can shine your light through us, because, God, we don't even know how to handle some of these new issues. But as they come our way, may we be pleasing to you in how we, how we try to make the most of each opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.